This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Buy the book on BFM 89.9. The summer of 1960 was made memorable by the release of a novel titled To Kill a Mockingbird. Miss Lee, with her very first novel, became one of our leading novelists. What was your reaction to the success of To Kill a Mockingbird? Well, my reaction to it was not one of surprise. It was one of sheer numbness. <laughs> it was one of being hit over the head and knocked cold. <laughs> it was something I never expected to... Uh, that I never expected that the book would sell in the first place. I was hoping for a quick and merciful death at the hands of the reviewers. But I was hoping that maybe somebody might like it well enough to give me some encouragement about it, some public encouragement. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Buy the Book. Uh, I'm Lee Chuilin, and joining me, as always, is my fellow enjoyer of fiction, even if that author only wrote really one book, Controversial Thoughts, Shamila Ganesan. Hello, ready for the controversy. <laughs> yeah, diving right in. So um, it is our monthly bibliography episode. I don't know if you've noticed, but we've been trying to go on uh, basically birthdays or death days, um, so anniversaries as a whole. Um, and today, what we're going to be doing is talking about Harper Lee, who was born on April 28th, 1926, and of course, famously the author of To Kill a Mockingbird, and more controversially, Go set a watchman. What's the second one you mentioned? I don't know what that is. She's only written one book and that's To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, well, to be fair, I don't know if there has ever been another one-hit wonder in terms of literature like Harper Lee. Um, her book is famously cited as one of the best or most popular books of all time, one of the most read books of all time. Atticus Finch, the character in her book, is one of often cited as the inspiration for generations of lawyers. So... Um, She's an interesting one to talk about because as popular or, or, or um, what's the word, singular as her book has become, she is the opposite. She shied away from the spotlight. She didn't want fame. She rarely gave interviews. Um, and really, even as a writer, it's almost as if everything that she had lived and read and done led up to To Kill a Mockingbird. And, and all of her experiences, all of her thoughts and inspirations were almost poured into this one book. Well, when she was asked about why it was that she never published another book, she said, I said everything I wanted to say. Um, when asked to give a speech later in life, when she was given an award, she said, you know, better to be silent than to be foolish or to be thought mm. a fool. And so, yeah, there is very much this um, premise of somebody keeping their own counsel. I will say that in terms of one-hit wonders, the other person also an American author, J.D. Salinger, I think is the person who's often cited and who also similarly, um, after writing a, um, a huge book at a relatively young age, decided, you know what, I'm not going to be part of the spotlight anymore. Um, and I think that the the reason why we continue to talk about these authors, and of course, let's refocus it on Harper Lee, but the reason why we continue to talk about these authors is because of the large cultural impact of their books. Um, and in the case of To Kill a Mockingbird, as you rightly point out, it's formative for so many people in terms of their ideas of justice, their ideas of race, um, and in fact, their ideas in some ways of what it means for a parent to be an inspirational mm. figure in one's life. And because those um, 
because those influences, I think, are so outsized, in some ways they eclipse the book itself almost as a reading experience. So you approach To Kill a Mockingbird in many ways with the same preconceptions that you would with a uh, with a Dickens or with, uh, you know, just any of the other classics because there's all this weight and baggage that comes with the book. And even saying this, um, I feel as if that would put a whole lot of unwarranted pressure on a first-time author. And because it happened during her lifetime, right? Mm. Um, so she was basically having to contend with, and I say contend with guardedly, because obviously it's amazing that one's work would result in all of this. But she did have to contend with the pressure then of all of this expectation and how this book became such a seminal piece of work while she was really a, a, a first-time writer. Um, that's it. If we look back at her life, she was actually born in 1926 in Monroeville, Alabama. And so you can see why that informs a lot of the stuff she writes about. Um, and her real name, her birth name is Nell Harper Lee. Harper Lee was actually just her pen name. She went by Nell um, in her personal circles. And she was essentially... Um, the, the daughter of a former lawyer uh, who was also a newspaper editor, businessman, done, did a series of things. And so um, through her father, she was actually introduced to the, the sort of tricky area of the law and how it applies to essentially African-Americans. Um, and in fact, I think saw a couple of cases in her childhood where um, African-Americans were brought to court and then essentially lost. And that formed a lot of the basis for what her uh, her novel ended up becoming. Okay, I have a lot to say about that, particularly in terms of how much of To Kill a Mockingbird is autobiographical, because I think even that was something which, again, for a person who is private, was understandably a little bit of a fraught issue. But while we're talking about her family, I wanted to also mention that um, when you say the name Lee... Okay, it is the most common surname, I believe, in, in the world. Um, but in this case, it's particularly relevant because we're talking about the American South. Um, they were a very prominent family and they included, in fact, uh, she is a relative of the Confederate General Robert E. Lee. And I think uh, that is just worth mentioning. We, we don't have to get too much into it. But when we talk about the things that shape her, her worldview, the kinds of people that she might have been around, um, you know, how it is that her family may have a variety of views in relation to subjects that are very, again, deeply fraught in the south of the United States. I think this perhaps gives some context. Um, now, to your point about her having seen cases, right, um, that, that involved people or, or situations that might have occurred later or, or been the basis of some form of inspiration. She often spoke about how somewhat uncomfortable she was with the moniker of this being autobiographical in nature. And uh, I think that that's also rather interesting, partly because of um, that real life case, partly because it involves a young girl in the South who idolizes her father, who is a lawyer. Um, her friend Truman Capote also kind of became the basis for a character in the book. So I don't know. I don't know whether this is one of those things where what the author says is one thing and what readers and academics receive from the book is quite another. Yes. And and I think that part is, is quite interesting because, I mean, Truman Capote flagrantly talks about how, oh, that was me. I'm Dill from To Kill a Mockingbird uh, is meant to be inspired by him. That's um, also his style of writing, yes. though. I mean, we keep talking about other writers, but but I mean, they, they were actually really close friends. Yes. And Truman Capote genuinely was a writer who often drew from his own life. 
And then the fact that while she had two sisters and a brother, um, she was actually the closest to her brother. And that is then mirrored in the relationship between Jem and Scout in the novel. And then Dill comes along and forms the sort of third to this group of friends. Uh, Truman Capote has also talked about how Boo Radley was a person who was really living in their neighbourhood. So the the lines between her, her fiction and her real life, even though she has preferred to keep them separate. I think it's almost inevitable and perhaps the discomfort lies in the fact that she doesn't want everything to be seen as autobiographical, that there could be inspirations, that there could be um, similarities, but to draw it with too broad a brush would then make things uncomfortably close and I I understand that, right? Um, But I think with with a writer like this who's so reticent to talk about personal life, this is almost inevitable, whether she liked it or not. So... Let's talk a little bit about how To Kill a Mockingbird came to be, right? Because um, basically, it's quite a romantic story and it's quite in some ways a New York writer's story. Um, You know, after having worked for a while, wanting to be a writer, her friends essentially gathered together and got her a gift of a year's worth of wages, a year's salary and said, okay, here you go. You don't have to work for a year. Now go write that book. And that is, I mean, that's a cinematic moment when you think about it, right? Also great friends. Great friends. Um, And I think the, the reason why I wanted to talk about the friends is because the sometimes this idea of writing, especially a great novel, gets very trapped up in this idea of a singular genius, of one person burning the midnight oil, you know, just hunched over a typewriter. And I'm not saying that that did not happen. But in this case, her friends gave her the financial support to do it. And once she had the early manuscript of To Kill a Mockingbird, there was another person who became very, very central in terms of managing to make this what it was. Yes. So there are actually two key figures, right? Mm. The first person um, in that group of friends you mentioned, Maurice Crane, who was uh, who would become her agent, lifelong friend to her until he passed away. Uh, but once that initial manuscript uh, was done, the person who ended up really playing a huge part in shaping it was Tay Hohoff, um, who was an editor. And it's really interesting, right? Their relationship mirrors, I think, the kind of editor-writer relationship that you don't really find very much anymore, but was pretty common at that point in time where the editor sort of discovers a diamond in the rough, spends time with the writer polishing the work. And that really was the journey because once we um, once we later heard about Ghost at a Watchman, uh, there were a lot of stories about how that was the early version of what the manuscript was. And it was Tehohoff who basically worked with Harper Lee to shape that into To Kill a Mockingbird. And I find all of that deeply fascinating because you hear of stories of... Um, Harper Lee, for instance, getting so frustrated with her manuscript that she flung it out of the window and then Tehohoff told her essentially, go pick it up, like go pick it up and rearrange it because, you know, that book has something. Um, And so when I think of the process that it must have taken to polish this piece into a book, um, I don't know, it's really quite something. We could have almost never had this book. Yes, or it could have taken another form, which is something that we can get to in the second half of our show. But we're talking today about the life and works of Harper Lee, um, who famously wrote To Kill a Mockingbird. We'd like to hear from you. Have you read To Kill a Mockingbird? Have you read Ghost at a Watchman? You can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899 and tweet us at BFM Radio. Bringing fresh meaning. BFM 89.9. When he was nearly 13, 
My brother Jim got his arm badly broken at the elbow. When it healed, and Jim's fears of never being able to play football were assuaged, he was seldom self-conscious about his injury. His left arm was somewhat shorter than his right. When he stood or walked, the back of his hand was at right angles to his body, his thumb parallel to his thigh. He couldn't have cared less, so long as he could pass and punt. When enough years had gone by to enable us to look back on them, we sometimes discussed the events leading to his accident. I maintain that the Yule started it all, but Jim, who was four years my senior, said it started long before that. He said it began the summer Dill came to us, when Dill first gave us the idea of making Boo Radley come out. Hello, everybody. You are listening to Buy the Book with Lynn and Shamila. It is our monthly bibliography episode. And for the month of April, we are talking about somebody who was born in April, at least in 1926. And that is Harper Lee, um, who was, of course, born Nell Harper Lee. So we've talked, um, I think we've kind of laid the ground um, for her success, for what led to the publication of To Kill a Mockingbird. And now it's, we're in the, I want to say, second act, right? In which she eschewed a lot of the publicity. She described it as in some ways harder than writing the book. Um, I think that the publicity itself also, she's spoken about this, actively kept her from wanting to write a second book because she didn't want to go through the whole the whole process all over again. And this is where we find Happily post To Kill a Mockingbird. So in this phase is when the movie was about to take off, mm. right? So they were in the process of making the movie. And there's some bits of stories around that that I really love. The fact that, for instance, she became lifelong friends with Gregory Peck's family. Um, she and had a lot of really good friends, actually. I know, right? Yeah. Um, and she loved him for the role of Atticus. Apparently, she was his, uh, he was her first choice. Uh, she loved watching him in the role. Um, I believe... Gregory Peck named one of his um, grandchildren after her. Um, so there, there's this close relationship. She continued being friends with his widow till the end. Um, so there's that. Um, she also, of course, won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 1961. Um, later on, she won the Presidential Medal for Freedom from President George Bush, uh, George Bush II. Um, but in the meantime, though, I think what we also saw was a writer becoming more and more reclusive, mm. more and more reluctant to be in the public eye. And because she didn't have family, or rather, eventually, she grew old, she didn't have children, um, a lot of um, her estate and who took care of her, I think, started becoming more and more complex. Um, till fairly late in her years, her sister was essentially the person who was caring for her and, and her companion. Um, and then I think where it gets sticky is after that. Okay, so here is the, the third act. Um, and, and that involves Go Set a Watchman, which is a book that... Um, a book that's quite complex to talk about because when it was first announced, of course, and if you have no other background, right, this idea of a follow-up to the Pulitzer Prize winning classic of a certain generation, To Kill a Mockingbird, it's very exciting. And I understand why from a publication and publishing industry point of view, it is kind of a, a golden goose, right? Because you have this this gem of an unpublished, unfound manuscript and here you go. And basically, it was published in 2015. Um, she was still alive then, actually. She passed away in 2016. But it was touted at first as this great undiscovered manuscript. Over time and through investigations uh, from a variety of journalists and um, from people who were close to her, it became 
increasingly clear that the provenance of the manuscript may not have been what they said it was and that it could potentially uh, be actu- the original manuscript of To Kill a Mockingbird prior to the Hohoff polishing, mm. prior to kind of the fixing up. And this is something that's borne out in, um, I suppose, the, the fact that it required a lot of reshaping in the first place to become the novel, but also that there are passages that are wholesale the same. Yes, and also this is exactly that point in time where Harper Lee's sister had passed away. Yes. And she was in a in a care home and essentially being um her, her, her one of her sole forms of communication with everyone else was her lawyer, um, Tonya Carter. And so there was we were basically getting so much of this information through this person. Um, and there were others who are sort of friends of the family or who knew Harperley over the years who released statements saying she never wanted this book published. Uh, this was never meant to be a standalone novel. Um, as you said, it's not of the quality that one would expect to come out of this. And that's not even including the fact that uh, it vastly changes one of the biggest literary characters of our time, right? That um, the character of Atticus Finch is reframed in a very particular way. Now, from a literary perspective, that's that's fine. It's yeah. not egregious. Characters evolve. Yes. But the quality of the book and, and I think more the agency of the writer um, or whether this was something that was done fully with her consent these are questions, I think, that marred this this third phase of her literary career. It's interesting, right? Because after an author passes on, um, we have access to all sorts of unpublished manuscripts from all sorts of people. And these are people who have been dead for centuries, right? They, they really did not have a say or could not have anticipated that their manuscripts would end up in private possession or would end up in libraries, in fact, where anybody who was able to could view them. And so it's an interesting question, this idea of authorial agency, because perhaps if it had happened after she had passed away um, and with the acknowledgement that this is the original the original manuscript of mm. To Kill a Mockingbird, I still think that it might not have been what the author wanted. An author who, by the way, again, we have to say, um, always said she would not write a second book and did not write a second book. So if it had happened after she'd passed on and if it had been framed as a literary academic as something of literary academic interest, as opposed to something of widespread interest to people who want to continue this story, then I think that the framing of it would be very different. It still would not get around those sticky questions of whether or not she signed the papers, whether she was fully aware of what she was doing, but it would at least help um, provide clarity on what exactly it was that they were publishing and selling. So it's worth saying that actually in 2015, the state of Alabama launched an investigation into all this, into whether in fact Harper Lee was competent enough to publish, uh, to consent to the publishing of Go Set a Watchman. Um, and they found that the claims were unfounded. However, so many people who knew her or who surrounded her contested these claims, um, said things like, um, Happily couldn't see, couldn't read, would sign anything that was put in front of her if it was a person she trusted. And so very worrying. And, and I think in, in some sense, you're right. It's one thing um, to, to contextualize it as a manuscript that was never finished, that was never meant to be published. But by the way, have mm. a look. Another to publish it as the long-awaited second novel by Harper Lee, the sequel to To Kill a Mockingbird, and then also to be told or, or with these doubts as to whether she ever wanted it that way. 
And I think it's um, the reason why I brought up the timing earlier of it being published in 2015, of her passing away in 2016, is because um, actually there was a very long period of time in which she did not give interviews and, and you know just continued to live her life, but who was also getting awarded every so often by a variety of presidents. And, um, you know, just being being given due credit for her role in shaping American literary life, right? And that is to say, she had a certain legacy. She has a certain legacy. But the fact that Ghost at a Watchman was published in her lifetime, um, positioned as a sequel, changes the legacy both of um, the, the character Atticus Finch, the story that was being told, but also your point about quality, also her clarity as an author. Mm. And we haven't actually spoken a lot about the language um, because th there's just so much to say. But actually what sets uh, To Kill a Mockingbird apart is the trueness of the, the tone and the clarity of the language. So there's a real simplicity to how she writes. Um, there's, a, there's a lyrical quality that isn't overbearing. And you very much believe that you're writing or that the story is being told from the point of view of a relatively precocious child. And yet it's not annoying. And I think that it is all those things that make the eventual story and the eventual unfolding of the story that much more powerful. So it's the point of view, right? Um, mm. I don't know if I've read another book that is so certain and so clear with the point of view. And so much of the story hinges on the fact that the point of view of a young girl viewing these very, very adult things shapes what we understand of it in a particular way. Um, and again, knowing that that wasn't the original version, that it was a sort of polished, um, uh, later adapted, rewritten version only adds to the fact that the end product is so powerful. Um, and that goes back to, again, why I feel so ambivalent about Go Set a Watchman, because that point of view is not there in the mm. next in the in this novel. Um, in fact, it almost doesn't even feel like it's the same writer. Um, and the question of legacy, the fact that the book came out just a year before she passed away, um, all of that, I think, it, it's a sad end to a writer who otherwise, I think, has meant so much to everyone. Which is not to say, and I wanted to end on a bit of an up note <laughs> because because otherwise it's just you know getting very very sad indeed, but. To Kill a Mockingbird is still a beautiful book. And, it is. Um, and I think that it is a classic of children's literature for a very specific reason. Um, and that's because the best of children's literature is not only appropriate for kids. And uh, and I think that To Kill a Mockingbird falls into that, that special category of, if you read it as a child, it has a way of sticking with you for a very long time um, because of that point of view, because of the uh, incisiveness and uh, the narrative quality of the story. But if you read it as an adult, if you never encountered it as a child and you read it as an adult, it's a beautiful book. And, and it's a rare book that manages that kind of appeal. It's so interesting that you called it children's literature. I don't think up till this moment in my mind, I've ever even thought of it as children's literature. It's taught in schools, though. It is, right? Yeah. Um, and maybe that's because I first encountered it for literature in secondary school. Mm. Um and also because the themes in it don't feel like they are necessarily for children. But of course, you're right. You could get a child to read this and, and it's perfectly readable. But you could also get a, an adult to read it and it wouldn't feel immature. And I think in many ways, that's the so that's the really interesting um, divide that this book manages to bridge. Uh, and it's also the reason why decades after it was first written, so many people are still able to read it and the themes still resonate so strongly. 
We're talking today about Harper Lee, um, her life, her works, and um, in the latter part of it all, some controversies. We'd like to hear from you. Do you like her writing? You know, have you read To Kill a Mockingbird? You can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio, and write to us by the book at bfm.my. Our courts are the great levelers. In our courts, all men are created equal. I'm no idealist to believe firmly in the integrity of our courts and of our jury system. That's no ideal to me. That is a living, working reality. I am confident that you gentlemen will review without passion the evidence that you have heard, come to a decision, and restore this man to his family. In the name of God, do your duty. In the name of God, believe And that brings us to footnotes. Uh, so in bibliography episodes, we usually talk about adaptations. Today's an interesting one because uh, really she only published uh, one book that was very noteworthy, but nonetheless one book. And that book resulted in one extremely famous adaptation. So um, yeah, let's talk a little bit about the film version of To Kill a Mockingbird. Gosh, how much time do we have? <laughs> because I, I mean, I've talked about To Kill a Mockingbird in both of this show and in our movie show, Popcorn Culture, multiple times. It's one of my favourite movies. Um, Atticus Finch is one of my favourite both literary and film characters. And I think if you're one of those curmudgeons who constantly complains about how the movie adaptation is never good enough, you'll recognize how rare that is, that a, a character that you liked in the book ended up being so singular on screen. But I think the movie as a whole as well, um, within the constraints of what they could depict on screen at that time and how far they could push some of the themes, it's such a perfect movie. Um, it, it absolutely hits the heart of what the book is. Um, I, I wanted to talk about Gregory Peck because... Uh, Atticus Finch is a singular character in the first place, but I do think that it is a perfect casting moment and a perfect performance that means that this character, uh, the film version in particular, has had such an impact to this day. This idea of the morally upright person, this idea of somebody who stands up despite the difficulty of what is right. And to do that without seeming grandstanding, uh, yes, to do that without moralizing, exactly, to do all those things and to do it in the package that was Gregory Peck in 1962, you know, is, is really something that's quite special. And it's something that Harper Lee also spoke about quite a bit that, um, you know, you mentioned earlier that they were friends, but she also spoke a lot about how that film was a work of art, how um, the, the meeting of man and character was just perfect. Uh, he also met her father, actually, who was the, the inspiration, of course, for Atticus Finch. And I think that that's rather lovely. Um, I forgot to mention this in the body of our show, but 
Uh, her father took to signing autographs yes, later in as life Atticus Finch. as Atticus Finch. And I think that a big part of that has to do with being um, associated, not just with the book, but actually with the movie. So the other thing that I love about um, Atticus Finch is that I think that that moralizing part um, in a movie could very easily turn annoying. Mm. And what Gregory Peck brings to the role is and I and I recognize this as I rewatch YouTube clips of him, which I do quite often. Um, he brings a little bit of insecurity or uncertainty or pain to his moral speeches. Vulnerability. Vulnerability, that's exactly mm. it, which makes him seem human. And I think reading that into the Atticus Finch character was so important. It's also why I don't think we needed Go Set a Watchman, because um, all of those uncertainties of living in that time, not being sure of whether this is the stand you should take. I feel like those themes are already in the book and it's already very much in the movie. Um, the novel didn't need to add that layer to it. Um, but yes, this is, I'm clearly not a fan of Ghost at a Watchman. So, um, but yeah, I think if, if you haven't read the book and you're not the reading kind, absolutely watch the movie and I think you'll get why it's such a big deal. I actually think that it's quite telling that there hasn't been a remake because the the movie is old now. Um, It is 60 years old. And on top of that, its themes still clearly resonate, especially in the United States today. Um, if you think about the the issues of unrest uh, that that they've seen, you know these rising questions about about reparations, about Black Lives Matter, about all these things, right? That that permeate kind of social conversations in the United States. You would think that somebody would go, you know what we can do. You know, it's the right time. I think that it'll make money. We can cast uh, good actors. We've got prestige directors. You would think that at some point somebody would say, well, I think we can do To Kill a Mockingbird because there there are no sacred, um, that there's nothing sacred in Hollywood, right? They've remade everything. So I think it's quite telling that they haven't remade this, um, even though, as I said, um, the themes are clearly adaptable to today. And I think that that has to do with not wanting to mess with something that was gotten right the first time and an understanding that because of the cultural impact of the film, you can't really replicate it and, you know, you're better off just rewatching. I am not going to say I want a remake. That said, I think if they didn't do a film, um, if they went down a miniseries path, for mm. instance, I think there's something there. I think there are ways in which this could be remade without treading on the legacy of the um, original. Um, but I say that with a lot of caution because I'm not even sure if I realise what I'm asking for and if I actually want it. So you mentioned that you wanted to talk about... Um not adaptations of To Kill a Mockingbird, but adaptations of Harper Lee. <laughs> so yes, because Harper Lee has actually appeared in a surprising number of films. So she's been played in uh, Capote, uh, in uh, Infamous, in the TV movie uh, about Jacqueline Suzanne. But my favourite portrayal of Harper Lee is actually by Catherine Keener in uh, Capote, where you know essentially she's going along with Philip Seymour Hoffman, who's playing Truman Capote on his um, Uncovering the Mystery. She's so good. Catherine Keener is such a good Harper Lee. Um, honestly, I don't know what Harper Lee is like in real life. I've only ever read her interviews. I've never seen her on camera. Um, but that's what I would imagine her to be. I haven't seen that film. Um, and, and I don't know why, considering the fact that it has Philip Seymour Hoffman and Catherine Keener, both of whom I love. So yeah, I'm quite excited to watch that. And I think that there is something about the... Um, there's something, and this is why we've spent a whole show on her, right? There's something about a person who you know is interesting, but who's also really reclusive that yes. makes for a fascinating character to tell, partly because, partly because 
in some senses, in a storytelling senses, she can be seen as a cipher. And I, I would like to think that the best things or the best ways they've gone about telling Harper Lee's story or having Harper Lee on screen is actually to not treat her like a cipher. No, and in this one, what they do, for instance, is they really lean into the friendship. Mm. So they have a lot of great conversations and and uh, she kind of chides him and, and it's great. Um, it reflects almost Dill and Scout in some ways, which I think was very deliberate, uh, a very clever adaptation. So maybe what I'm actually saying is I wouldn't mind a biopic if that could happen. I don't know how much people know. Yeah. Right? Th- that's the thing. And that's kind of the beauty of it. But again, that's the mystery that's going to pull someone in. Hopefully that person, whoever they may be, is um, a good filmmaker. Uh, we're talking today about the life, work, legacy and adaptations, actually, of Harper Lee, who was born in uh, on April 28th, 1926. And we've been asking you for your thoughts. Uh, basically, have you read To Kill a Mockingbird? And for that matter, have you watched the film? You can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio and write to us at buythebook at bfm.my. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.